I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. So for the risks, it's basically, what's the probability of that risk to happen? And if it happens, what will it mean for us? The level of risk and the probability. If the probability is high, if the risk is also high for the company, we got to act on it pretty fast. How we evaluate the probability is really a bit subjective from time to time. It's really us deciding what might come next. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, our guest today is COO Alliance member and Mercury's COO, R2SR. R2 is responsible for executing the business plan and achieving P&L results by leading the sales, operations, product development, and IT functions. He leads and manages the team for agreed upon commitments, as well as developing longer range operating plans, overseeing, coordinating, and harmonizing all major business functions. R2 joined Mercury as the VP of product in 2022 and was responsible for defining the product strategy, leveraging his years of experience in logistics and also coordinating global teams. He's got a team of 40 people that are also based in Turkey. R2 is actually originally from Turkey and he started his career as a mechanical design engineer two decades ago, transitioning to software engineering after completing his academic studies at Northwestern University. Prior to Mercury, R2 worked at several high-tech companies in the Boston area and he enjoys sailing professional sailing captain, also enjoys biking, cooking and trying new cuisines in his travels. You're gonna enjoy this episode. We'll see you on the inside. So R2, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Happy to be here. Yeah, looking forward to, um, to, to chatting with you today, to learning from you. Um, of course, you're also a member of the COO Alliance, so it's been great to, to meet you in person as well and see you at some of our online monthly events. But we got to hang out a little bit back at the MIT event that we held in Boston a few months ago. I'd love to be able to learn from you today a little bit about the business. I want to ask you first about what Mercury does and um, I know you're in the shipping and fulfillment space, which is interesting because one of my very first large coaching clients was in the industry that you're in as well. So it's going to be interesting to learn from you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Mercury does and then what your role is there as the COO? Sure. Perfect. So Mercury is a tech-enabled healthcare and logistics company based in Boston. We offer every type of shipping a healthcare company might use. And we break it up into three markets, medical devices. These are like MRI machines or machines for testing blood, diagnostic kits. These are different types of kits that test 
if somebody has cancer, we did lots of COVID testing uh, in the last few years. And then the third one is life science research. This is an early stage biotech who are doing research plus clinical trials. And then at the end, pharmaceutical production. Medicine is available commercially. We offer services globally in every country and every type of shipping that our clients might need. We have dedicated teams. We call them squads because our founder or our owner is from the military. So we use some military terms. And we have a software platform. That's why we are tech enabled. We build our own software. And the software is to provide our clients the, to ab the, the ability to ship, track, pay, and do everything that they need uh, for their shipment. So basically, that's where we are right now. And that's what Mercury does. I love that. I'm curious, and I, I like it as well. Why did you choose the healthcare space? And how focused are you on the healthcare space? Like, will you take clients from outside of healthcare or are you only working in healthcare? Primarily, Mercury started with uh, law firms, historically. It was founded in 1984. And that was the need at the time. But with the e-signature act in 1990s, that business started to diminish. And Mercury looked around and started to do business for healthcare life sciences. We are in Boston. Cambridge is a big healthcare life sciences city. Also robotics. So we dove into multiple markets prior to our acquisition in 2020, where our new owner uh, came into the play. Then we decided to focus on only one market primarily. When clients show up from different markets, if we can do it, we do it, we do it, but we don't really chase clients outside of healthcare life sciences. The reason we chose healthcare life sciences is because it's difficult. Mm. It's a niche market, but it's difficult. It's hard for others to get in. And we have the know-how how to do it. And we use that to build our software. And it's a growing industry. And in the meantime, purpose matters. It's not just about when it's what you do, who you serve and what changes you make for others. Our employees appreciate it. I was talking to one of our employees yesterday in his early 20s, his first job. And he said, I said, why did you choose Mercury? Like not many people know about us. And he said, well, I feel like we make a difference when we ship healthcare life sciences, products, test kits for cancer testing. I feel good about it. So. Yeah, we feel good about what we do. You know, you just touched on, I think, which it's the silver bullet. It, I think it is probably the most important decision that the company has made. And that is choosing an industry that matters because my former coaching client that I worked with for four years, I took them from 40 employees up to about 700 employees are just in the shipping and fulfillment and, you know, 3PL space, but there is no purpose. It's just, they're just, they're just shipping stuff. You know, it's really interesting to hear that you are in the same industry, but because it's healthcare, it really wraps you in a purpose that people can rally behind, which is great for recruiting. It's great for investment dollars. It's great for, for just the people's morale showing up day to day. So I think that's really, really, really interesting. You also said that you're doing some stuff around the shipping of test kits. And that's interesting because that's something that's only been around for 
maybe, well, I don't know, I guess it's been around forever, but it's certainly been popularized with the growth of the internet, I'd say in the last 10 years, diagnostic kits. I feel like I have a diagnostic kit every three months for something, you know, where I'm, so how did you get into that space? So once we started looking into the healthcare life sciences market, it's a broad market and you need to divide it into multiple markets. Otherwise, you don't really serve well to our clients if you just bundle them under one umbrella. We have a dedicated team doing research, what our clients are doing, and in which shipment types they need the most help. We primarily focus on small to medium-sized companies, and they don't necessarily have a shipping department. They don't have the logistics uh, experience. When we talk to them, Diagnostic kits is one, was the one that they needed the most. And during COVID testing, that was our one of our biggest business units. That's how we got into it. We heard from our clients. We listen to our clients a lot. Like we talk to them. When we build our software, we always get their feedback. We ask them what they need and then shape our offerings according to their needs more than us pushing ours to them. I would imagine that the sheer volume of clients that you have to work with when you're dealing with the diagnostics is going to perfect a lot of the systems that you're then going to use for some of the bigger, you know, less frequent clients. Is that true? That is true. For diagnostic kits, we ship more frequently. For others, like medical devices, MRI machines, less so. And it's a different service. Diagnostic kit shipping versus MRI sure. machine. One of them is freight. The other one can be a same day shipping. There are learnings that we can transfer from one to the other. Yes. And the carrier network. Like as you grow your network, the better service you provide to your clients. So I have a, a little bit of PTSD from this whole uh, <clears throat> diagnostic kits around COVID because I was traveling a lot. My wife and I were traveling a lot during COVID and we had to do COVID tests in multiple countries. What was the, it must've been very exciting to have been able to be doing a lot of this shipping and a lot of volume and a lot of the shipping. How did you prevent the company from getting too bloated or you know, building too much OPEX in the background? Because all of a sudden COVID did hit a brick wall. So what did you have to do to be careful to at least be able to make good margin through all of that and not have it you know, disrupt your company as well? Because you're not a brand new company. You've been around for, for 45 years. Correct, yes. And it's a very good point because we experienced that, experienced that uh, drop last year in COVID tests, but we anticipated that. That was coming. We were talking to our clients. They knew it, is gonna, it was gonna drop. We followed the regulations and the governments, how they react to COVID, what changes. And we knew it was going to come. And primarily, we don't necessarily depend on just diagnostic kit shipping. Medical device is also big. Life science research was also big. So we don't have a lot of customer concentration. And we did that for some clients. But we knew it was going to go. So we were ready to replace that gap with new clients. How well did we do? We could have done better, I believe. But we were, we were pretty much prepared for that shift. And we always look beyond where we are. So if we switch gears a bit, like what does the leadership team do? What do our people in the company, teammates do? We try to live ahead of today. Like 
today for us is not 2023. We are already in 2024. What might come next? 2025, five-year plan, where, do, where we want to be. So we always take a look at risks and opportunities. And every quarter, we really renew and revisit those risks. How do you decide which risks to start to mitigate, which risks to kind of be cautious of, and which risks are, you know, maybe so remote, you know, the chance of being hit by an earthquake and your building being obliterated that it's not worth worrying about? How do you decide on that? And then also on the same side, how do you decide which opportunities to capitalize on, which opportunities to decide to go after, you know, which blue oceans to dive into? Right. So for the risks, it's basically what's the probability of that risk to happen? And if it happens, what would it mean for us? The level of risk and the probability. If the probability is high, if the risk is also high for the company, we got to act on it pretty fast. How we evaluate the probability is really a bit subjective from time to time. It's really us deciding what might come next. We talk to clients, we talk to carriers. What if one carrier leaves us? What might happen? Will they leave us? What's the problem today? Can we mitigate that risk? What can we do? For the others, we also take a look at high risk issues, less likely to happen. So we prep the company for those type of risks. If at any point technology comes up and what we do, our know-how becomes redundant or unnecessary. Uh, anyone can do what we do. We do prepare for those type of shifts in the industry, and but we know it's not going to happen tomorrow. But we do take measures for those type of emerging technologies that might make our business redundant. Yeah. How often is the leadership team sitting down and discussing the SWAT, like the, with you know, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? How often are you sitting down and looking at risk mitigation and the opportunities? Is it a, an annual discussion? Is it quarterly? Is it monthly? Is it weekly? We follow the EOS model. We are not like very tight to it in every way, but every quarter we sit down and we revisit the SWAT and see if anything changed. Uh, we also have a strategy meeting every six weeks, not just the C-level, but we also include VPs and some directors in that. It's a broader discussion in the company. We don't change the strategy in every meeting, but we revisit and rediscuss if anything changed in this industry, should we change our strategy? The SWAT every quarter, not many things change, but we revisit, acknowledge, and adjust. So it's a quarterly review. I like it. That's kind of what we were doing when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We had six consecutive years of 100% revenue growth. So because we were on this hyper growth trajectory, we decided to run our strategy meetings monthly instead of quarterly. I think companies that are running between kind of 10% growth and 30, 40% growth annually, quarterly is, is often enough. But when you kind of go past that and you're in that hyper growth stage, strategy becomes something you need on a monthly basis because the company is completely different 12 months later. So it sounds like you have the right pulse for sure. Right. So you're right. also around 50 years old as a company, but the company was acquired recently, I think about four years ago. It, the, the two founders sold to a new owner. Can you walk us through some of the lessons that happened during that changeover and 
you know, how did the company have to adapt to a new owner? Mm -hmm. Of course. First, I would like to acknowledge what the previous owners did. So they built this business, they provided jobs to people, and they have a good reputation. And when the new owner, Josh Meadow, acquired the business, the restructuring started. We call it restructuring, actually. We don't want to call it acquisition. It was like a handover from the previous owners to the new owner. And the restructuring required lots of change management. And the reason is, Mercury, when I joined two years ago, it was a very different company. At the time when it was acquired, it was a totally different company with a different mindset. When the restructuring started, the goal was really to grow the company and really uh, go after larger clients, grow the revenue, grow the company in every way. Now, with that, some people can adapt to that change, some can't. And the ones who adapted the change are still with us. The ones who couldn't adapt the change uh, or who resisted, then we didn't continue with them. Either they left or we decided to separate our path. Those were not easy decisions because you need to run the business. So you are really running the engine and then trying to fix in the meantime. And it's not an easy task. You cannot drop the ball. There's lots of know-how. There's lots of tribal knowledge in the company that accumulated over the years. And as you make those changes, you sometimes don't know what you don't know, what's tribal knowledge, what's institutionalized. So that switch was, was challenging. Uh, we managed it well. We didn't drop the ball so far. And the team forming phases, like basically forming, storming, and we were in that storming phase and we are going into the norming phase. Then the performing will come after. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about something. The other day, I read about a COO writing about when the going gets difficult and how they were happy to be in the CEO mastermind group that they were. It made me remember that that's why I started the COO Alliance. It's a peer group and community for COOs and seconds in command of companies doing 5 million to 250 million in revenue. Our core group meets monthly online with other companies like yours. It's amazing because you get your frame broken tons of times. And when you think there's only one way to do something and one way to feel about something, you get your perspective completely changed on a regular basis. We also host hundreds of COOs on our monthly mastermind calls and smaller groups twice a year at our in-person COO Connect events. So if you're the founder or owner of a fast-growing company, tell your COO to check it out. And if you are the COO, head on over to the COOalliance.com to learn more about becoming a member today. All right, back to the podcast. Yeah, I love that model. I was first introduced to the forming, storming, norming, performing model by a head of finance that we brought in from Crystal Decisions and Business Objects. And she showed us where 1-800-GOT-JUNK was. We were at the performing stage, but then all of a sudden we started to hire all these new executives into the company that had never been there. And we were almost right back to the storming and norming stage again, where we had to argue and fight and get to know each other. So you got brought into a company that had been around for a long time, had a, a, a leadership team in place, had systems in place. And then you came into the company as the COO over top of 
the entire organization in many ways. What were your first 90 days like and how did you enter the company without causing more rip, more bad ripple effects than good ripple effects? So I joined in 2022 and I came as the VP of product. So uh, my first role was very different. There was no product. There was no product team. I was the only person to build the product. And so I started building the product team. Then I owned engineering team. And we started building our engineering function in Turkey because I'm from Turkey. I knew people and we had good talent there. We brought the product management and UX in Boston, engineering and technical product managers in Turkey. Then in last year, in October 2022, basically like seven months after I joined as VP, uh, I assumed the CEO role. Then my responsibility Group. So it was a transition. It wasn't like day one, I was the CEO. I knew the company. I knew the challenges. I knew what needed to be done. My first 90 day, even though I knew some, I didn't know everything. I was really focused on product and the technology engineering side. I didn't know about sales. I didn't know about finance. I didn't know a lot about operations in detail. So I needed to understand what works, what doesn't work, what changes we needed to make at the time. And first, really 30 days, just talking to as many people as I can. And it wasn't the first time I did this in the company. I have been doing this since I joined, but the scope was different. It wasn't about product. It wasn't about engineering. It was more about, tell me, let's talk. I literally talked to every single person at every level. Mm. and just listened didn't do anything and then the second 60 day i had an idea like what we can change what we can improve on it might be a process it might be a person it might be the structure of the company and me the ceo and our cmo we got together we discussed where to start from and then started i like the term nemowashi basically going back to the people and then telling them what you think, and then you, they tell you what, what you think is right. And then it, you almost make it like it's their idea and it's now shared idea. And you start with the ones that are not hard to achieve. So now you have consensus in the organization. There's buy-in, at least from the majority of the group. And then you start with the easy ones to win. The, sec the last 30 days, 90 days, 60 to 90 days, start doing those small changes. And then people see the success. This is working. We trust these guys. They're making the right changes. Even though there is some hesitation in the beginning, because change is always hard. No one wants to change. We don't like change. It's easy to stay in the same state. But then when they see the results, then they start trusting you. Since then, we have been making these changes to be honest, every time we make a change, they still feel anxious. Yeah, of course. Is it going to impact me? Will I still have my job? Will it come to me? When will I get let go? Like all these questions come up. But the ones who stay, they now feel better. Of course, all these changes, I can imagine how anxiety provoking it was for them. Yeah, it would be very anxiety promoting for sure. I, I love that you actually 
outline your process. In chapter seven of my new book, The Second Command, that's almost identical as to how I described the, the onboarding process of that COO. And, but, but you created a new term. Did you call it memo washing? Uh, memo washing, it's a Japanese term. Memo washing is when they bring the tree, um, carry a tree from one place to another place. You first prep the roots and then prep the tree. And then once everything is ready, the roots are ready, then you move it to another location. So that's okay. part of the change management. Got it. Nemawashi. I thought you were calling it memo, like if you were going to, oh. if you were going, but it kind of is memo washing. Like you're, you're about to roll something out, but before you do, you get all the team to talk about it and you take all their ideas and then you roll it out as their ideas. It is almost memo washing. I like, right. but True. I like memo washi. Okay. So you mentioned to me earlier before we went live that you have a, a team of people that are based in Turkey, you've got about 40 individuals based in Turkey. What's it like working with individuals in foreign countries that are, you know, a huge part of the organization? Can you work with us? Can you talk to us about some of the idiosyncrasies or the differences and how you have to adapt and how they have to adapt with you? Sure. So some facts, there's a time difference. You can't change that. <laughs> we are not co-located. You don't see each other. But these days, it's less uh, of an issue. And then the cultural difference. That's something you can work on and mitigate some of the differences or find ways to work together. Our advantage is I'm originally from Turkey, so I know the culture. I've been living in Boston for about 17, 18 years, so I know the culture in the US. So I can see the differences and find ways to help the teams work together well and understand each other. So, so I was like the gelling factor in the equation. Now, the time difference is an issue, but if you build a team, if you give them autonomy, you don't need to manage them very closely. For them to have that autonomy, they need to understand the business. If you treat them as just doers and just throw work over the fence and do this for me, and then expect a good result, that wouldn't work really well. They are not contractors. They are full-time employees. We provide the same exact benefits that we provide our employees in the US. Wow. So it's above and beyond what uh, most companies offer in Turkey. Plus, culturally, we provide the same environment for them in their home country. We include them in every way in trainings we even brought one of our trainers uh, from us from the us to turkey last quarter we meet them every quarter it's not always online our ceo our cmo me we fly and we meet with them we if you don't break the bread with people you can't really create that connection yeah so you sit down you talk to them you know them as individuals I know their kids' names. So that makes the big difference. Then the teams start gelling. They have hackathons, they work together. The team in Turkey, they get together, even though they work from home once a month, we rent a space for them. They go to the office one day, work full day, and then go out and drink and have fun. So all of these things really have two people from Turkey. They are here this week to meet with the rest of the team here in Boston. So we are frugal as a company, but 
for these type of things, we spend money, we invest on it. We don't just consider our overseas resources uh, replaceable people. So right. they are the core of our team. I love the thought process behind all that as well. So one of the things I really liked as well, as you said, you really are investing in their growth. I, I started a course a couple of years ago, an online course for anyone that's in a management role. It's called Invest in Your Leaders, and it's all about growing the leadership skills of people. And the fact that you as a company would actually take a trainer from North America and fly them over to Turkey to work with your team means that you really do invest in your people and you really see the upside of that. I really wish more companies would understand that it's not just about growing the CEO's skills or the COO's skills. It's all about how do we grow all of our people's skills. Now, you also joined the COO Alliance a year ago. What was it you were looking for before you joined and why did you join? And, and then maybe are, what are you picking up that's helping you in your day-to-day -day roles now? Yeah, so I assumed this role in October, 2022. I got in, I knew some things, I didn't know some others. For the ones that I don't know, that was easy. You go, you read, you learn. The problem is you don't know what you don't know. And this role, first time as a COO, there were things that I don't, I wasn't aware of, but I, don't, I didn't know. And that's causing like some anxiety plus, um, yeah, so it's it, it, a bit anxiety provoking, to be honest. Like, you don't know what you don't know, and it's hard to figure it out yourself. The COI Alliance, I heard about it a while ago. Actually, last night, my wife said, you remember I told you about COI Alliance? I'm like, yes, I remember, actually. <laughs> you told me about that, because every night is like, I'm like, am I doing everything right? And are there other things that I need to do? And it wasn't that clear. With COI Alliance, it became more evident what I need to learn, what other people do, learn from other CEOs in the group. There are people, so it's a broad range, like there are companies with just 10 people in the group. There are companies with 300, 500 people in the group. And everyone can provide a different level of experience, feedback to each other. In mm. our working group uh, back in, when was it? In September? September, yeah. MIT. Yeah. In September, we had working groups and we were all sharing our experiences and I learned a lot from them. Sometimes you're aware of it, like the AI tools. Everyone talks about AI. It's a big thing. Would I do it? Where should I start from? Other people tried it and they made some recommendations. Now in our company at Mercury, it's one of the initiatives. We focus on that. People growth and leadership. Uh, growing people reporting to us, the program that you're offering to directors and uh, people who are not in the C-suite. So we focus on their growth. So it, it brought uh, more awareness what needed to be done. So it was very effective. We have these monthly events. We have good speakers coming. And uh, again, there was client experience from EOS. Uh, that was like, eye-opening, what else we can do with EOS, beyond EOS, like that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about scale-up, right? After EOS, there are other frameworks because if you grow beyond a certain level, so again, we don't live in today. We live in like next year, two years, three years down the road. And CEO Alliance helped me figure out what's next. 
it's interesting because you just touched on my next question, which was the thinking one to five years out. And, and you're right that being involved in something like the COO Alliance is allowing you to work on your skills that maybe you don't even know you need or maybe you don't need today, but you probably will need in a year out. So it's almost like being strategic about being a, a senior leader. So can you talk a little bit about your thinking as an organization in the one to five years out? How do you balance thinking and, and planning around the company one to five years out while at the same time we need to execute on today? Mm -hmm. Right. So couple of things. We have a vision, like set vision. Here's where we want to go. That's our North Star. Mercury is an organically growing company. We, we are not VC backed. We put the whole profit back into the business. Now, with that in mind, we are building a five-year growth plan, a five-year budget, basically, based on some projections. And for next year, we have a more precise budget. The year after, it's less precise. And then fifth year, probably it's inaccurate. It's precisely inaccurate. But at least we have a plan in place. We also have, we, we use the term, the OKR objectives and key results. And we use that for the next year. And all of those objectives are aligned with our North Star, five mm -hmm. years down the road, 10 years. Mm -hmm. 10 years is not as realistic. We don't really think about that as much, but directionally, it's somewhere out there. Then we break it down to quarters, quarterly objectives, quarterly key results. And as an organization, we do the same for the budget, full year budget, quarterly reviews, monthly red light, green light decisions in hiring. And if quarterly we do well, we may give more budget to the teams based on their needs or approve the roles that we approved, we, we discussed in the beginning of the year. Because it's organically growing, we don't want to be ahead of our skis. We don't want to just approve everything higher and then start firing people because you didn't hit your goals. We grow and then we grow our revenue, our growth profit mark, profits, and then we grow our team. For objectives and key results, we want to build the culture like bottom up more than top down. Certain things can be top down. For that reason, we have like one company objective from the leadership team, just one. All the rest, they come bottom up, they decide. So we provide the teams the autonomy to make decisions. Mm. I like that you said that your you know, five-year budgets or five-year plans are precisely imprecise. I always call it, you know, we have a SWOT analysis and I always call it a swag, our silly wild ass guess. You know, it's, it's kind of our best guess for the future, but you can't be so precise around something that is so far out there. But as you pointed out, you do need a little bit of that direction and, and some of those directional goals or directional budgets are very helpful in us making decisions. The, the idea of change management came in when you were talking a little bit about the acquisition from the new owner as well. Can you speak to change management and how you, you know, lead a company through those different types of, of I guess, scenarios or, or changes? Right. So that was the biggest piece. And I think as a CEO in the EOS model, model we don't call it CEO, it's integrator. And mm -hmm. I like to use the term integrator internally um, because it makes more sense. So basically, you are the person who is really integrating and making sure the cross-functional collaboration happens. 
And with all these changes, all functions get impacted. If you change your finance function, your operations will get impacted. Your product requirements will change. I read the book a while ago, uh, Leadership That Get Results uh, by Daniel Goldman. And it, he talks about six leadership styles, coercive, uh, authoritative, affiliative, democratic, pace setting and coaching. And I was trying to figure out which one I am while I was reading the book. Then I realized you have to be all of them at different times. If it's a crisis, if you have to make really tough decisions and you have to own it, maybe you have to be a bit coercive. Like, this is what we are doing. Here's how we do it. Now we are doing it. As time progresses, as the transition happens, you can be more like, let's do it. Let's come with me. We'll do it together. But if the tension increases a lot in the organization, you can't always do this. Then you have to talk to their feelings and be more affiliative, right? Mm -hmm. Have more empathy at the time. Yeah. Then again, align with the team formation, like storming, norming. Around the norming time, you can be more democratic. You can say, here's what I think. What do you think? Do you agree? What else we can do? And you want to go fast? Here's how fast we want to do it. You tell me how we can do this. When you are in the performing phase, you can really go into the coaching phase. They come to you with questions and you are like, try this. Or what do you think we should do? Uh, try that. Let's see what's going to happen. And again, you can go back to the coercive phase. There's one crisis in business. You need to change gears. And that's also okay. I think the critical piece is you should know when to switch your style. It's funny, I'm, I'm listening to you describing how you approach the organization and, and manage kind of the, the organization. And I was laughing thinking of you as a professional yacht captain and a sailor and how you can't, you can't sail a boat and fight the wind. You can't sail a boat and fight the currents. You can't, and, but you still have the course that you're trying to race on. And I'm thinking of you out in Boston Harbor or New England Sound, you know, sailing a yacht. It's got to be very similar, doesn't it? It is actually, I sail in Boston Harbor and you're absolutely right. There's high tide, there's low tide. You need to know when it's gonna be low tide. Otherwise you can't get back to the uh, harbor and you need to know about the wind. You can't always go in that direction. There are ships coming through. You need to be aware of those. Yes, that's like a perfect analogy. And I'm not claiming I do a perfect job at all times. So I get feedback. Again, I still talk to almost everyone at least once a quarter. And I ask for feedback. I make mistakes. I learn from those mistakes. So don't take me wrong. Like I'm not doing everything right. Okay. Well, Artu, I'd like you to go back to your 21 or 22 year old self and give yourself some advice. What advice do you, do you wish you'd known when you were younger that you know to be true today? Huh? Well, I was killing myself when I made mistakes. I was so hard on myself. Mm. And I think that's the reality. You got to live with those mistakes and Make mistakes, learn from your mistakes. Don't be so hard on yourself. Not everything will go perfectly well. I was devastated when I got a relatively lower, not low performance review at once. And I was like, I couldn't sleep. It's not worth it. Those become like uh, fond memories after a while. 
just keep trying and don't just give in. I love that as advice for sure. Artu Ajar, the COO for Mercury. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Very appreciative of the time today. Thanks, Cameron. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.